0: Welcome to the OrthoReal podcast. Uh, Our guest today is another luminary in the space of orthopedic joint replacement, Dr. Hugh Cameron, uh, extensively published on joint replacement surgery, has been involved in teaching about it uh, internationally all over the world uh, during his career, and has been really one of the pioneers in joint replacement surgery, author of multiple books, countless articles, uh, Dr. Cameron, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and, and subsequently orthopedics? I know you started off in Scotland and your, your journey to, uh, North America and, and what all transpired there.
1: Yeah, well, it was kind of funny. Um, I thought I was going to the Olympic games as a hammer thrower. This was before anabolic steroids. and. Um, then I ran into problems with my... So I, I was looking for some course at university, which was a long, slow course. And medicine in Scotland is a six-year program. And what I really wanted to do was engineering, but, but medicine was second best and that the, the engineering programs intense, the medical program is not so intense. So I ended up doing medicine, which um, I actually liked. And the reason I got into orthopedics was um in scotland we used to do a lot of work in the hospitals when the residents were on holiday the medical students would fill in and the the guys i liked best were the orthopaedic surgeons and so i, I ended up um, wanting to do that and it was one of my professors who was fairly well known in the us because he'd worked with the uh, department of veteran affairs and amputations uh, he was the one who suggested that it was time to leave Britain, because Britain was in a terrible mess at that time. And he suggested that, that um, I I go either to K. Clausen in, in Seattle or Gus Sarmiento in, in Florida or Toronto. Now, Gus Sarmiento I sort of knew and liked, but Gus said as soon as you go to the U.S., this was in the early 70s, they'll draft you and send you to Vietnam. So I thought, eh, maybe I'm not, you know, not. So I went to Toronto, and um, the year before I went, because I knew I had to wait a year to get in, um, I did engineering, I did bioengineering, because orthopedics, after all, really, is just applied engineering, and that has been enormously useful. It's not that I need to know the Laplace Transform, but I need to know who knows the Laplace Transform, and I need to know the significance of it. So, So that... That year I spent in doing bioengineering in Glasgow was was enormously useful. And then I came to Toronto in 1972, and of course the Toronto program at that time was absolutely wonderful. I ended up working for Ian McNabb, and I got lucky when I came because uh, he had had known an engineer who was thinking about bone ingrowth into implants. So I did all the animal work for that, and I that was with the engineer called Bob Pillier and so Bob Pillier and I did all of the basic science involving ingrowth. at that time there was only two other people in the world working on it Gus, uh, um George galante in in Chicago was and Brannamark the dentist uh, the, was working in it in Sweden, so it was a completely new field and it took about 10 years probably. No, it wasn't that. Uh, certainly about five or six years before we had done enough of the basic work that we could think about doing implants. And so I did the first um, porous coated implant. I put it in Toronto General when I went on staff there in about 1976 or 77. And since then, of course, porous coating is now the almost universal method of anchoring hips, and um, a lot of knees are also done with porous coating.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You really were uh, in a a transition point where everything uh, with the hip had been, uh, well, most everything had been cemented to that point, Um, so that was a a transition point. So stepping away from the history for a minute, do you see that uh, coming into increasing use in knees? Or are we gonna be uh, at all cementless knees at some point?
1: Oh yes, I, I've done nothing, well, not nothing, because the, the guys who were interested in the Cruciate substituting knees, you know, Chet Ranawa and John so they were not interested in porous coating, they were happy with, with um, cement. So there was the two schools, the Cruciate retaining guys like uh, Leo Whiteside, and myself, and, uh, and, and Tony Headley were, we were interested in porous coating, whereas the cruciate substituting guys wanted to use cement. I, I had the one of the earliest uh, porous coated knees in the market with Tricon. I did with Richards again in the early 80s. And I never had a loose femoral component because it was an opening wedge so that if you stood on it, it wedged it on tighter. So I I think that... For a certainly appreciate retaining-type knee, there's absolutely no need to cement, unless you have problems, of course, if it's a revision or or if there's, there's some issues with the bone. But for a primary knee, I see no reason that all femoral components should not be cement-less. The tibial component, there was a lot early ones on the market. For example, the the early uh, PCA that I know Tony Headley was working with, The ephemeral component was good, the tibial component was not. The fixation was inadequate. Uh, We knew from some of the work I had done what movement was allowable. If you have too much movement at the bone implant interface, the bone won't grow in. It has to be very, very limited, which means the implant's got to be tightly anchored to the bone for the first six weeks to allow bone ingrowth. But I don't see that as a problem. I mean, we have now numerous designs. I used the, the Tricon and then Profix, which I did with Leo Whiteside, and um, also the one of the, the Sigma Knee, which I did with Johnson & Johnson. These were all non-cemented, and they all were just fine, both femur and tibia.
0: Well, you touched on a great point there. You've been involved in a lot of design work, a lot of implants sort of have your Your fingerprints, if you will, uh, all over them. Um, I believe you were very intimately involved in the development of the, uh, SROM stem as well, uh, which is gosh, 30 plus years now of, of, you know, a great track record and still a, a very commonly used implant system. Not many have stayed
1: around that long. Um, yeah, that, that was funny. It was The S-ROM was originally SIVASH, it was originally a Russian hip. Now SIVASH was enormously clever. He had several things which no one ever thought of. He was the first titanium stem with a cobalt chrome head. He was the first guy to think of a sleeve, and he put some, some slots on at the stem to reduce the bending stiffness. Now, these were, I thought, breakthrough ideas. Now, none of them worked, because the design wasn't any good. <laughs> but, but, but you know, all you need is the concept. You can always make things work. Right. So so, so I came on board when when a, a friend of mine who I've known for years, Tim McTyne, he was the salesman for, or he was the product manager for Knees for Richard, or Smith & Nephew, isn't it? When I started working with them on Knees, and then when he moved to this other little company who had the STEM, you know, he phoned me and said, "You know, this doesn't work. Can you make it work?" So um, there were some really good engineers there that I thoroughly enjoyed working with, and it took us about a year to to you know tweak it and to make it that it worked. And basically, the stem hasn't changed in 30 years, and and it's still in use today.
0: Absolutely it is. Is that, uh, what's, what's your your proudest uh, point uh, as far as what you've
1: developed? Do you have
0: a favorite child, so to speak, of the uh, the implants you've been involved in?
1: I like the knees, but I, I really like the Eshrom stem because there wasn't anything we couldn't handle with it. I mean, I did a lot of work in Japan, and for them we actually took the SROM down to a 6 millimeter stem, if you can believe it. Uh, You know, because the older Japanese were tiny. Um, They're not now, they're just the same size as everybody else. I think we sold about six, six millimeter stems. I mean, that's the size of your pencil. And none of them broke, which was pretty good. And at the other end, we could handle anything up up to 25 or 24 millimeters internal diameter. But with those, I realized that that was just too big. So what I started to do for these very these huge canals was I did uh, narrowing osteotomies. If you go with a long stem, that resolves the end of stem pain, but if you want to use a regular stem, I, I began to do a, an osteotomy where I could actually close it down around the stem so I could reduce the the internal canal diameter from 25 down to about 21. Uh, and if you use a 21 millimeter stem, there's no problem with end stem pain, whereas if you use a 24 millimeter stem, they're all going to get end stem pain because the implant's just so stiff no matter what you do with it. Mm. And I use the S stem all over the world. I mean, I used it in China, I used it. So I have great fun with that.
0: I, I totally agree. And it's a, it's an implant uh, probably used in most all of our ORs all around the world still. And as you said, it handles a. A variety of situations. Certainly, if you were going to hang your hat on one, that would be a, uh, a good one to do so on. Um, when I think about joint replacement and, and sort of the, the community or, or the space uh, of it, you know, I've been in practice about a dozen years now uh, after my fellowship and you know, I kind of look around at a lot of these uh, these folks that have been very influential, and you know, in the past year, uh, our community, if you will, has lost uh, Doctor Larry Dore, uh, Doctor Les Borden, uh, certainly my mentor, uh, Tony Headley, um, and so we're, we're you know, we, we're we're losing some of our pioneers, and and we're losing some of the knowledge from that era. Um, that's you know fascinating to me and probably to a lot of our listeners. Uh, I just had the uh, the pleasure of reading your book, uh, Have Knife, Will Travel. I know you're you're doing a lot of writing now. Um, and a lot of that dealt with a particular era of what you referred to as the, the traveling road show. Can you tell everybody about that?
1: Yeah, well, this was when we developed knees and hips that actually worked. Before... Before the, the early 70s, they just, the, the knee replacements didn't. You know, Frank Gunston's knee and the geomedic from the Mayo Clinic, they worked, but they were they didn't really work very well. And it was really Mike Freeman who developed the sort of cruciate uh, retaining knee and John Insull who and Chitranawat who developed the, the cruciate substituting knee. Um, and so all of a sudden we had knees that worked. Uh, Nobody knew how to do it. I mean, there was a few people in Europe and a few in in the U.S. You could almost name them, and it was the same with hip surgery. I mean, I went to see the guys I thought were the greatest surgeons in Europe. There were only about four or five of them. I mean, there was uh, Robert Judea, of course, the the, the fabulous French surgeon, uh, Renato Bombelli in, in Italy. And a few more like that, and of course the, the greatest surgeon in all the world, I thought, was Heinz Wagner. I mean, that was like watching God operate. I mean, he was just unbelievable. But so we had we had developed these knees and hips, and but no one outside the US, even mostly inside the US, knew how to do it. When we started teaching, the average surgeon in the US was doing about—he was doing less than ten joints a year. Mm-hmm. Now, at that level, at that level, you, you can't be any good. Uh, I mean, you just don't, with all the best will in the world. Sure. So we spent an awful lot of time on on instruments to try to help them, and then we to teach them how to do it. So initially, the teaching was mostly inside the U.S. and most of us. There was maybe about twenty of us. You know, Larry Dor and Tony Headley and um, you know Leo Whiteside and and uh, Fred Beakle. And we were on the road about once every couple of weeks. I mean. When we started to sell the SROM stem, what we did was we hired a couple of scrub nurses. They go, one of John Brothers' scrub nurses and, and um, the, the scrub nurse from, from one other surgeon. And they covered half of America so that um, one girl handed the East Coast and one girl handed the West Coast. And if anybody wanted to do an s stem who hadn't done it before, the scrub nurse scrubbed in because you couldn't have salesmen scrub in but you can have scrub nurses scrubbing. And so but that was how we, we taught in America. Europe, of course, was also pretty sophisticated. But then the Far East began to open up and because these things are expensive. And so Japan had the money and South Korea had the money. So I was in Japan once a year for 20 years and the same in South Korea. And gradually other countries, uh, I mean, China was about 30 years behind. Um, so so we had great fun and there was, as I say, there but 20 of us and you'd run into each other on the road or in the Shilla Hotel was one of the favourite places in, in Korea and we also had this anytime you're in the Far East the best way to come back is via Japan because the, the flights from Tokyo really met, do very well coming in your time was coming into North America and in the airport lounge in Narita they had uh, computer jacks Most airports at that time didn't have computer jacks. So, I mean, I used to travel with two batteries for my computer. Uh, So again, you'd run into all the guys in Narita Airport waiting for their flight to go somewhere. So it was was great fun.
0: Well, and and from your book too, I mean, Pretty rapid turnaround, I, I think you, you indicated that you kind of had a, had a timing schedule with your uh, short-acting and long-acting uh, sleeping pill of when you got on the flight, so you could you'd turn around a long trip over a weekend.
1: Yeah, this was, I mean, we were on the road so much, everybody got to know what to do. Uh, for flights to Europe, which are about six hours from Toronto, I used a short-acting sleeping pill called Halcyon. Now, the problem with Halcyon is that you tend to lose your memory. Because I knew I was. I, that could be problematic I,
0: like, if you're teaching.
1: Well, yeah, but it's short term. Okay. Um, I I I was once lecturing in Brussels, and so I knew I flew into Charles de Gaulle. I I changed terminals in Charles de Gaulle and got another Sabina flight to Brussels. I can't remember being in Charles de Gaulle, but I don't care. I've been there before. Um, <laughs> for the for the long flights, we, we used Used a, a, another long acting one. I got to the stage I could go to Australia for the day, and the the way you do that is you fly into LA, and you catch the flight about midnight from LA to Sydney, and that's then you you know you got on the plane you have a couple of drinks you pop a long acting sleeping pill and fall asleep, and you waking up coming into Sydney at midnight, so you take another sleeping pill. You sleep that night, then you give your three talks the next morning, and catch the same flight back to the US that afternoon. Wow. Uh
0: Definitely a different era, but a good a good point, you know, of of how how do you scale up the educational process for these these implants and these systems when when people haven't been trained on it, and you know,
1: I mean. Yes, yeah, this is something. This is something I'm actually very proud of. This was started by Morris Mueller and the AO group, because before then, all the teaching was university, and it depended on the professor. He was he told people what to do, so the teaching was terribly haphazard, and and it really was very very poor quality. But Morris Mueller and the the Swiss guys to sell their AO equipment, they started to run courses in Bern. And then they took the show on the road, and uh, they began to teach worldwide. They completely ignored the universities. And so when we began to sell implants, we followed the—and You there was only about five companies, so that's why there's only about 20 surgeons. Um, We followed uh, Morris Mueller's technique of teaching, that that we would go to the the, the country— And the companies would organize courses within the country. If a university wanted to get involved, that was fine. If they didn't want to get involved, that was fine too. Um, So we completely changed what was university teaching. We, We took it completely outside the university sphere in that sense. And now all surgical teaching is done that way before then, you know, you had to go to a university and be nice to the professor and all the rest of it. And that was, I mean, that really hadn't changed since the Middle Ages. Sure.
0: Well, and we've had, I guess, another shift now with the just the resources and the content that are available online of being able to watch uh, in video of, of people watching or of people performing surgery from anywhere in the world,
1: and... Uh, exactly, no. now it's, again, it's a it's a sea change. I mean, when I was on the road, we were using slides, you know, we had big carousels of slides that we took around with us. The, the, you know, there was no computers, there was no Zoom, there was no nothing like that. Um, it was only just as, as you know... Uh, in the last 10 years or so that, the, you know, began can't use computers. But before then, it was slides that you, you, you put into a carousel and put up on a screen. And that that was why somebody personally had to be there uh, to do the operations. I mean, we, we used to, I used to get, for example, a, a course for Japanese surgeons that I ran once a year in Toronto. And we'd get about 30 surgeons over from Japan. And I would operate and we would pipe it up to the auditorium. And Jim Bono used to come up from New England Baptist to, to sort of run the meeting for me. And, um, you know, and those things gradually developed. And as you say now, there's really no need for it because you can tap into that stuff anywhere in the world. You can watch a great surgeon operate.
0: Well, and there's certainly a, a great benefit to being, uh, live and in somebody's OR and able to really exchange that information. Um, I had a talk with another surgeon here in the U S recently, who, uh, has, has been very intentional three, four times a year, just whenever he's somewhere, he goes and he finds the great guy in that area and gets in his OR and, uh, learn something from him and uh, it's something that I've tried to do a little bit and I think is also a benefit. But you're you're exactly right. I mean the technology has enabled a lot of that and now we're we're stepping into a world where uh, a virtual reality, augmented reality and some of these other tools are gonna gonna be involved in, in training residents and training surgeons and in, in technical aspects.
1: Exactly, but I think you're right. The personal contact makes a big difference. I mean the first time I visited Heinz Wagner I mean, I was in love with the surgical technique, but he wouldn't tell you anything very much. And, but fortunately, I, when the first time I was there with him, Renato Bombelli was there, and Bombelli knew the complications, and he would say, well, you know, ask him what to do when they have dislocates. And if you asked him, he would tell you. If you didn't know, he wouldn't tell you. So, so I think the personal touch really does matter because people will tell you things that they think, I've always called them whispers in the wind. For example, when metal, metal implants got into trouble, um, I had been in Germany with with, um, the the fellow who was the professor, Hans Willett, the professor in Göttingen, because I had known him for 20 years. I knew him when when he was still in Frankfurt. Um, I I went up to Göttingen with him the first time he went up with the professor there. He told me that he thought there was a problem with metal, metal. He didn't know what it was. And then a couple of months later, I was in Korea, and uh, Yunsu Park, who was actually one of my fellows, and he's an absolutely great technical surgeon, he told me the problem. And again, they didn't know what the problem was. So at that time, I had been using metal, metal, I did about 150 of them, and I never had any problems. But then I only used a 28 millimeter head. And it, it, I, but I stopped. As soon as two really clever guys in the world tell you there's a problem, I think you should stop until... You know, there was nothing they could publish. It was just they had a feeling something was wrong. And so I got lucky. I, I stopped. Eventually we found out what the problem was. It was nothing to do with the metal-metal bearing. It was the head size. That If you go up to a 36 head size, that you overstress the taper. So it wasn't a bearing surface, it was a taper junction problem. But the problem is that in medicine, if something goes wrong, rather than analyze it, they tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So, I mean, I think they should go back to metal, metal, but just nothing bigger than a 32 head. And if you stay with a 28 head, it's fine, there's no problem. But it's like so many of these things, once it gets a bad reputation, no one's going to use it.
0: I think that's a great point and I, and maybe that sort of cross-references with what you've talked about where a lot of this teaching and a lot of this training has, has quite honestly been facilitated by involvement of industry and they've they've got commercial interest here and so I think a lot of times if there's a potential problem that you or I might hear that, that whisper in the wind, our, our immediate reaction, yours was in that case, is to to shut it down and just wait and watch and see what's going on. Whereas maybe a more corporate reaction is, is just to deny it. Uh, and then if, and when there's a problem that becomes undeniable, then as you said, the baby goes out with the bathwater and everyone's so afraid of of litigation
1: that they just don't want to get near it anymore. Yes. Yes. We had had the thing with that. Uh, I was using a double taper stem for a while and, um, I hadn't had any problems with it because I was just using it as a cemented stem, so they were just n- elderly people, and I really had no problem. But Dickie Jones, you know, the the, the, the Texas surgeon, sure. uh, Dickie, Dickie had been putting them into younger people, and he had a rodeo rider who was wrestling a bull, and while he wrestled the bull, the, the taper off the neck and stem broke. Mm. And we thought, oh, well, it's just Dickie putting it into some bull wrestler or something. <laughs> but then it happened again. And then I had one patient in which it popped out. And we realized then we have problems. So we immediately closed that down. We stopped using it. And we analyzed the problem. And we simply we increased the length of the taper. We almost doubled the taper length. And we doubled the strength. And six months later, we put it back on the market. And since then, we've had no problems with the double taper stem. But so, so I thought, I liked the company, because as soon as Dickie and I said, hey, we get got problems here, the company stopped. I mean, there was no ifs or buts or, 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 you know, we'll cover it up. They just completely stopped. So there never was any lawsuits about those cases. It's not like, you know, some of the companies uh, carried on when they knew there was problems and because I've been involved in a lot of these lawsuits because I like going to court and, and you know I'm quite happy to give expert uh, be an expert witness <laughs> well, I've done it all my life I mean being cross-examined is great fun you really have to think on your feet um, you know A equals B B equals C so C equals Z well not quite um, so I was very proud of the company they just completely closed it down until we'd solved the problem
0: well You've talked about a lot of things here with, with implants and, and some successes and failures, and you've been at this long enough to have a lot of perspective. You know, as you kind of look back through through how this industry and some of these implants and, and ideas go in cycles, you have any thoughts on on? things that you thought were really good uh, that would, would be game changers that never really made it or things that you you saw it and were, were like, man, this is just a garbage idea, but it, it kind of hung around and actually worked out?
1: I'll tell you one interesting thing I did. <clears throat> yeah, oh, God, it must be in the late 70s. I had a bunch of kids. not many kids. It's mostly a middle-aged lady's problem. Their feet go flat. They, they, you know, in the, the middle-aged ladies, they ruptured tib posts and the foot collapses. But I had a bunch of younger kids whose tib post stretched out a bit, and I could shorten that, which was okay. But what I did in some of these these kids was, rather than do a fusion, you know, a grace procedure to push the heel around, I had a little implant made up that I put in the sinus tarsi. It was a, a metal ball in that a little plastic. Um, and and I put it in the sinus tarsus so I could jam wedge the foot the heel round into the neutral position, and I did about twenty of those. One of them was a professional skater who did these big you know jumps that that that, that these these professional athletes do. He did these big jumps in my little piece of plastic. Now I got too busy with other things and never really pursued that. But that certainly is one thing which would be quite useful because a pre- I don't like fusions. A grace procedure leaves the, the hind foot so stiff it throws strain on the ankle. And 25, 30 years later, the ankle's gonna wear out. So that um, I sort of like that. And I, I sort of felt I should have pursued that further, but I, I never did, it just, I had too much else going on. We were still doing a lot of work with the porous coating implants. As far as other stems are concerned, yeah, the resurfacing of the hip. I did the original ones of those. Again, there was four of three people in the world doing it. Mike Freeman in London when I was working with him, Harlan Amstutz in in L.A., and uh, um, Heinz Wagner in Germany. And they weren't good. And the reason they weren't good was that we had to use two thick bits of plastic. Now, I got Depew to make me a piece of plastic that wasn't a hemisphere. It was just a third of a hemisphere. So I could use it a lot thicker. So my results with the hip resurfacing were better than most people. But it wasn't worth it. It wasn't as good as we thought it would be. The reason we resurfaced hips was the stems were coming loose, the cemented stems. And it was a terrible job to revise them. But now stems don't come loose. I mean, I've, I haven't seen a loose estrom stem in 20 years. And all the other stem. I mean, the tall Mallory stem, you know, the Mallory head. The loosening rate for that is just about zero. So the necessity uh, to stay out of the canal went away. And the big advantage of a stem component is you can, of course, vary the offset, which you cannot do with the resurfacing. So I think resurfacing was a, a nice concept, and it comes back every 10 or 20 years. I, I really don't think it's worth it. Uh, I, I think that the stems are now so good that there's, there's no need for that.
0: I would certainly agree with you on that point, and I, it is interesting, as you say, it's in cycles. Uh, again, you mentioned uh, Dr. Amstutz in UCLA. Uh, Dr. Headley was uh, on faculty there for a while uh, after his fellowship, yes, yes. and I think Tony had done about 300 of the uh, theories resurfacing, uh, procedures, yes. and he said it, it was the most universally perfect uh, series of cases that he had done. Uh, that they they all failed. Uh, so when, yes. when when the metal metal resurfacing came about again uh, in sort of uh, early mid two thousands, he he said, uh, "No thanks, guys. I've seen this before."
1: And uh, yes, and he, he was he was lucky not doing it because they ran into problems with the fixation of the. That's the tabular component. They were really bad. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's still losses going on. But, <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was a uh, shall we say, unfortunately, not as good as it might have been. Yeah, I, I knew Tony at that stage. One of my I was cross appointed at the, the engineering department in Waterloo, which is a really good engineering school in Canada. And one of the guys that I worked with, Greg McNeese, he came down to work with Harlan Amsterdam. He took a year sabbatical. And he and Tom Gruen uh, and and Harlan were the guys who developed the the the, the loosening con- that they, they classified loosening of cemented femoral components into a very very useful uh, uh, system, which you know we, we could use. So so I I go back a long way with that too.
0: So you know, sort of putting on your your prognosticator hat, what? What do we need to be figuring out in joint replacement? What are the what are the frontiers for us? What 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 can we do
1: and get better at? Certainly, upper limb upper limb is not good. Uh, that, that's for sure. And ankles are not good. Um, hips hips I think are are really quite good. We still have the problem of revision the, the of the acetabulum. Um, that I would like to see, I'd like to see much better artificial bone graft, um, because when you use um, allograft, that seems to me such, you know, a medieval. I, I mean, I worked with Tom Driscoll, geez, it must be in the 80s, on artificial bone graft substitutes. Uh, and I've always liked that because, you know, taking bits out of someone else and putting it into someone else seems to me medieval. Um, so I think there's a lot of what needs to be done in artificial bone graft and a lot of what needs to be done on bone regeneration not for not so much for the femoral canal, that's not a problem as for the acetabulum um, for the knee i it's going it's pretty good there There are problems though and the unsolved problem I see for the knee is when the flexion space is too big. Once your flexion space gets over three or four centimetres, you're really looking at fixed-axis hinge. And one of the problems with the fixed-axis hinge nowadays is they've all gone rotating. And that's a major, major mistake. Uh, because one of the problems that, you know, there aren't that many knees that fail repeatedly. And the ones that fail repeatedly, it's nearly always due to patella tracking. And if you use a rotating platform hinge with multi-tower tracking, it's going to dislocate. Uh, so for those problems, they, it must be fixed-axis, non-rotating hinge. And right now, there's only one available from Germany. It's really not a very good one. So, so I, I think the industry has going to waken up to the fact that we need better quality hinges. And again, you can make a stem that won't come loose, but you can't make a bearing and a hinge. They won't wear out because the loads on it are too high. So what I would like is stems that you could take the the bearing surface out, leaving the stem behind, and just you know lock in a new a new bearing surface. But that's the biggest problem I see right now in terms of knee revision is that there are no good non rotating hinges. Well,
0: on the hip side of that, are, are there? Are there a a lot or even uh, enough people working on that? Because I feel like with uh, additives manufacturing and 3D printing, you're you're getting probably more interest in in filling all those voids with, you know, customized metal uh, pieces rather than something
1: biologic. Exactly. And if you can do it, that's fine. But often you end up with a $10,000 paperweight. Um, because it doesn't quite fit exactly. It doesn't fit as well as you would like. And what I would like is if, I mean, you see these weird debris cysts approaching. Now, if you could simply drill a hole in the bone, wash it out with a high-pressure washer jet, and inject uh, a, a bone graft substitute, which we know preferably something that's got regenerator capacity, which would fill the cyst in then that would obviate the need for a lot of that stuff. Because you can see where debris sits, especially in the greater trochanter, long before the patient has any symptoms. And it would be a five minute operation, you know, to drill a hole through the top of the troch, wash the the, the debris out, and fill it with a bone grass substitute. So so I would see that as like, you know, changing the oil, and you know, you change the oil in your car every 10,000 kilometers or something. Well, not me. I can usually forget, but months longer. But um, but you can see these problems coming, and some of them are, are soluble without going to you know major revisions and without going to custom implants. And yes, being able to print implants it certainly is is very useful. But we'd like to not. The, the problem is the bigger the chunk of metal, the more. Risk there is of, of infection uh, because the bug can snuggle up around the metal and you know, like a summer hiding in his cave. Um, so uh, I, I like to use a small, you know, to debulk the metal. I, I'd rather have the bone regenerate. For example, when I was doing knee revisions uh, for infection, what I would do is I would take the implant out, take off the stems and all the all the bells and whistles, and Then I would fill up all the bone defects in the bone, the bone graft substitute, doped with antibiotics. And I would cement what was left just the two surfaces back in place as a temporary prosthesis. And then leave it for a year or two if the patient was walking on it. So when you came back to revise that again, um, the bone had reconstituted itself. So you couldn't use primary components but you certainly could use a very much smaller revision components than you otherwise mm-hmm. would have had to use. So sort of an
0: uh, impaction grafting type technique with antibiotics in the the bone graft?
1: Exactly, in the bone graft. Not, they, in Japan they use hydroxyapatite, which is not good, because that doesn't, that's way too, it takes a century to absorb. Uh, you need something that absorbs a lot faster than that. And I prefer tricalcium phosphate. Uh, because I, I thought that lasted about nine months, which was a pretty pretty good. But um, there's all sorts of potential there, and, and I can see that as something very useful. Uh, you know, something that you can inject into the bone without having to, to take the implant apart. You know, because you can see an implant beginning to loosen up, and you can see the wear debris cyst developing long before you need to do anything about it, before the patient has any symptoms.
0: Agreed. Um, you've, uh, you've, uh, stepped away from the OR, um, and, and doing other things now and, and writing a lot. Can you tell, uh, all of us what you're, what you're doing and about some of your books and about some of what you're, you're passionate about these days?
1: Yeah. What I do know is I, I have clinics because I mean, 90% of orthopedics don't need surgery, but someone's got to sort out the patient. There's no point in a patient coming to see a surgeon, and they haven't decided if they need a knee replacement yet. That's wasting the surgeon's time. That's, I regard, is my function to come and talk to me, and I can tell you what, what it will do and what it won't do. And once you've made up your mind to have the operation, then I can send you to see the surgeon. So I do a lot of that. Plus, you, you know, you've got shoulders and wrist the and disease, and all that sort of thing, which needs treatment, and it needs treatment of an orthopedic surgeon, but it doesn't need surgery. So I run clinics about four or four to five days a week doing that, I mean, not full-time, but for, you know, five, six hours at a time, and I find that great fun. What I'm interested in right now is scoliosis, because I'm very unimpressed about what they're doing with scoliosis. And I see, you know, Toronto's an immigrant city, so I see all these kids coming in from all over the world with essentially untreated scoliosis. And I'm very unhappy with what's being done about it. So I'm thinking about that right now. I've got this funny. It's an engineer I worked with. She was worked in the US, and then she married someone to come up to Canada. And so I've known Lida for, well, I don't know, 30 years. Her kid got scoliosis. So she was interested in it, and she's developed some very interesting stuff. So we're, we're sort of thinking about that. The other thing that, that I do is, is I now write. I've always written technical. I mean, I wrote two technical books, and I've written, oh, I don't know, uh, at least a couple of hundred um, peer-reviewed papers, and I've just finished writing a book chapter for one of my fellows who's been writing a book on revision total knee replacement, so that's been fun, but I also write, and one of the things I have done recently is I do posts, because I get questions from my patients and from other people about what's going on with this virus business, Uh, so I, I, I do about a post a week on that, because I get friends all from all over the world to tell me what's happening I'm jazz in Texas and um, you know um, Luca Morega and Brescia, and I found they had been taken down because they wouldn't, they weren't, um, you know, they weren't fitting in with what the government was saying. And so I actually published a book which I call um, the Journal of the Plague Year 2020, because the original Journal of the Plague Year was Daniel Defoe's one in the 1700s about the Black Death. So, so. This has actually been so sort selling of very well. And the other thing I do, which is interesting, is I write with my scrub nurse. Because as a guy writing in his own, you know, you get things wrong. But if there's a woman sitting beside you saying, you can't say this, and this is how women yeah. would actually think. <laughs> so Edna Kwame's been with my, I met her in Toronto General in 1972, and we've been friends ever since, and we've written about three books together. So so I'm, I'm doing that. We just published one right now called Prions from Wuhan because we know who funded the, the gain-of-function research for the virus. We know who's funding the research done in Wuhan on anthrax, but we don't know who's funding the research done on prions and why they're doing it. So, so we thought that might be quite interesting for people to think about.
0: You certainly do have a lot of very in, varied interest, uh, touching on uh, everything from uh, COVID. There, I think even in a in a surgical circle, you know, we're in an era of super subspecialization. I, I do implant arthroplasty of, of the knee and hip, and I, I don't do scopes and I don't see feet. And you've you've touched on foot surgery and implants you've developed, and on scoliosis and and a lot of things. So that's. Um, Interesting to me, and interesting that you, you've been able to keep such a a lot of varied interest open.
1: Yes, yes. but I mean, I, as you know, you can't do everything. So for years, I was really just doing hips and knees. I had to, I had to stop doing spines, which I quite liked. I mean, I knew, as you're not a spine surgeon, you probably don't not remember no Art Steffi, but Art was the American who developed the plating of spines. And I knew Art, and I knew Ian McNabb, so I introduced him. Art flew up from Cleveland to me, and I took him along to see Ian McNabb. And I did a lot of reduced spine surgery. But then it gets, you, you have to subspecialize, you can't do it. And so for about 20 years, all I did was with artificial hips and knees. I mean, I was one of the original founding members of the American Food Society, but I stopped doing feet because you can't do everything. And it's only since I stopped operating that I'm I'm redeveloping my my interest in these these other fields outside of
0: joint replacement. I think we uh, we all benefit from having uh, fertile minds like yours uh, addressing some of these uh, these topics. Um, I thank you so much for uh, for the conversation here um, for. Surgeons, reps, patients, uh, everybody listening to us on Ortho Real, is there anything you want to leave them with or anything about, about your career or about what we should all be working on or thoughts?
1: Yeah, I reps get a bad reputation. I worked with uh, drug reps, uh, with uh, technical reps all my life, and I liked the guys. The guys I worked with were honest and straightforward, and if it was a problem, they didn't conceal it. Because concealing a problem is, is no good at all. Uh, you you, you got to tackle it head on. If you think there's a problem, stop now and solve the problem. Have someone look at it. And if necessary, bring in someone from outside to get to get a new a new view of it. But I see too much cover-up going on right now. And, and I don't like it. I don't think it's reasonable. And you don't get away with anything in life. I mean, it comes back. You get found out eventually. Um, and I, I, I've always worked very closely with, with the companies, and I liked it. I I found them all great people to work with.
0: I think that's a great point, uh, I think, for, for surgeons and, and for the reps we work with and companies, and you've obviously got projects with your scrub nurse when when you've got everybody on the team that's got a, a pure intent and a good goal with what they're doing, it, it's to everyone's benefit.
1: Yeah, and the other thing I think is very useful to friends all over the world. That um, I mean, if I, in latter years, if I thought there was an issue, I could pick up a phone and phone Yunsu Park in Korea, or 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 phone Luca Marega in, in Italy and Brescia because these were top of the line guys. And you know, being, uh, going to meetings is useful. I mean, I, I we went to Seth Greenwald's current concepts once a year for about. I think I was at the second meeting, uh, and so you you would be spending a few days with with guys like Leo Whiteside and Tony Headley. And, you know, you hash over problems which you can't publish because you're not certain about it yet. But you can certainly talk about it and see if anyone else has any clever ideas. And I think that that is enormously useful as a personal contact.
0: I think you're exactly right. And I've got a handful of people around the country that I trust that I'm uh, very quick to send a text to and... uh, Dr. Whiteside has been gracious about doing some of that as well. So uh, I'll add you to that list, sir, if I can, and, uh, and hit you up sometime when I need some advice.
1: Yeah, I've got some of my fellows in England who who, who send me stuff and say, what the hell should I do about this? <laughs> and, you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's your function. I mean, if you've been doing it for 40 years, I mean, they may think your idea is crazy, but it gives them a different viewpoint of what to do.
0: You're exactly right. Thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it, uh, and we, our audience, appreciates having you on the Ortho Real podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for asking. I'm honored.